We are starting a new sermon series this Sunday, and we have four readings from Scripture to share with you this morning, uh, the first of which comes from Luke chapter 5, verse 16, um, and this is speaking of Jesus. It says, Meanwhile, he would slip away to deserted places and pray. Our second reading comes from Matthew 14, verses 10 to 13. And this is after Herod has had uh, John the Baptist imprisoned. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried him. Then they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Our third scripture reading is again from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 39 to 42, and this is at the time when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And our last verse, which we will hear many times over the course of this summer, comes from John 15, verse 5, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Forgive my little extra distance from you this morning. I've picked up some kind of uh, crud that I'm working, working its way through from the travel. Um, it's wonderful to be home and it's wonderful to be back here. From east to west, home is best. And we are looking forward to sharing about the trip next week, next Sunday. Um, so, but uh, our hearts are full and our bodies are in recovery. Uh, we had a 33-hour flight journey to San Francisco. And then when we boarded our plane, they canceled the final flight. So we scrambled and uh, rented cars and drove home from there through the night. So we're, we're still, you know, getting, a, getting back into some kind of uh, experience of normalcy. Um, so for now, I want, we're going to begin a new series of messages that will take us through the summer. And it's called Connecting to the Vine. Connecting to the Vine. Um, this image from John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine. And he says to the, I am the true vine and my followers are the branches. This is an image that is borrowed. Jesus borrows from the book of Psalms and from Isaiah where Israel is described 
as God's vineyard and God is the vine grower who is, takes care and nurtures Israel and they were meant to be the nation that would bear fruit for all the other nations, to, uh, to, to bear fruit for the world, for the nations. But they had fallen short and so Jesus enters in on the scene and in John chapter 15 he claims to be the true vine, the true vine and it's this wonderful image um, and, uh, and he says God is the vine grower and then he says that you my disciples and those who will follow after you to be my disciples, you are the branches. And so the branch's job, and so now we as the church are meant to fulfill um, in the name of Jesus Christ what Israel was unable to fulfill. That is that we would be fruit bearing for the world. Um, and, and so this image is meant to remind us that Jesus is the source of life and our primary task is to stay attached to him. And when we stay attached to the vine, the nutrients and the, the life um, is passed through the vine into the branches such that we are able to bear fruit. But staying attached to the vine is quite a challenge in a world that is wanting to disconnect us from Jesus and is wanting to lead us into all sorts of different directions. And so it's important that we practice, that we develop spiritual practices and disciplines in our everyday lives, things that, that encourage us and help us to stay connected to the vine. And so that's what we're doing this summer. We're looking at various spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines that help keep us connected to the vine. And the first one that we're looking at this morning is solitude and silence. The practice of solitude and silence as an essential practice for healthy Christian living. For some of us, the idea of solitude um, is, is, is daunting. Um, it, it, solitude and silence can feel more like torture than something uh, to in experience, something to go after. You know, if you think about solitary confinement is one of the worst punishments that we have in our judicial system. Why would anybody want to choose to go spend time in solitude when we're punishing people in this manner? If you've ever seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, the last thing we want to do is be alone on an island for many, many years. Why would anyone choose to be alone? On the other hand, however, we all recognize our need for rest and our need to process our experiences, our need to, to think and to ponder and to, to consider. Blaise Pascal once wrote, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he is unable to sit quietly in his own room. The sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he is unable to sit quietly in his own room. Because it is when we are in solitude that we have to to deal with ourselves. I just have a few simple thoughts about solitude that I want to share this morning. And the first is that solitude is where God awareness is nurtured. When we take time out intentionally to be in solitude, we are cultivating a sense of awareness of God in the other times of our lives when we're not in solitude. So we practice solitude in order that we would experience a life of solitude, a life of God's presence when we're active and busy throughout our days. We know this is what happened with Jesus. 
and we assume that this is why Jesus got away to deserted places to pray and to be with the Father. It was there that he could reflect on the demands of his day, his ministry, the people that he had encountered in the presence of the Father. Not only did he practice this in his own life, but he also taught it. He taught it to the crowds in his famous, the Sermon on the Mount, his primary teaching at, towards the beginning of the sermon. He says this, but whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Part of this teaching was, was a correction and a criticism to the Pharisees who would love to go out and pray in public where they would be noticed as being super spiritual. Jesus is saying forget about all of that. Go in, in solitude and, and spend time with the father and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So here Jesus is saying that there is a reward for spending time in solitude. What is that reward? It's probably not a new Tesla. We don't really know what the reward is that Jesus promises. Could it be that uh, it is a deeper union with God, a greater sense of peace and contentment that gives strength and regardless of our circumstances? In Mark's gospel, we see this. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. So he got away alone before the demands of the day would come uh, to his attention. And then as his reputation started to spread, people, crowds of people would start to flock around him, and he recognized the need even more. And so in Luke 5, we read this, Now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of, the disease, of their diseases but he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. The temptation would be that all these crowds are coming to him and that he would be healing them. The temptation would be to think that he is just great and he has these incredible powers and that he could go on his own might and on his own strength from person to person to person and heal everything. But Jesus recognized that his power was not his alone. It came from the Father. And so he returned to the Father to find that source of strength and power again and again and again. He wasn't relying on his own strength. This tells me that Jesus wanted to process his experiences, to find rest, to spend time with God. Luke then describes Jesus' actions as he faced the most daunting experience and episode of his life. On the night that he was betrayed, he's about to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and this is what he does. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial. It was a garden setting in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are olive trees there. They're beautiful. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So he goes in with his three clo two closest people, and then he withdraws from them to be alone with the Father and says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. So it's in the presence of the Father in solitude that he could bear his honest prayer, which is, I don't want to go through this. I know this is my lot, but please, if there's anything, just take it from me. And yet God, the Father, receiving that honest prayer and ex Jesus experiencing the love of the Father in that moment, he can then surrender and say, not my will, but yours be done. 
It is in solitude that we can be honest before God and it is also in solitude that we are met with a love of God that receives that honest prayer and even the struggle so that then we can finally surrender our will to God. There was a sense of closeness that Jesus had with the Father. It was nurtured, at least in part, in a regular practice of solitude and silence. In these times, he gained clarity about his mission. He gained, gained strength to face the hard times, and he was comforted by the Spirit. This leads to the second thought, which is that solitude is where healing happens, and healing brings new life and new possibilities going forward for a future. I think about King David and how many times he how many of the Psalms were written when he was in a cave in hiding from Saul's wrath? Uh, David grew up as a shepherd boy, spending lots of time in the wilderness in solitude with dumb sheep who couldn't speak back to him. And, and he wrote many psalms and hymns and, and that what he began as a teenager went all the way through his life such that he was referred to as a man after God's own heart. I think about a time when Jesus needed healing in his life. You think, well, the Son of God, he was God himself in the flesh. He certainly wouldn't have needed any healing. He was perfect, right? Yes, he was perfect, but he needed healing from grief. When John the Baptist uh, died, it says this, John the Baptist was beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a tray and given to the girl which was the daughter of Herodias and there was this whole like kind of lustful thing that Herod wanted to be impressed by her and she wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter and so for this experience uh, Herod orders it as such and she brings it to her mother and later John's disciples came for his body and buried it and then they went and told Jesus what had happened and as soon as Jesus heard the news, what did he do? Did he go to his therapist? Did he go to his mother? Did he go to his best friends? No, he left in a boat to a remote place to be alone. I find it fascinating that Jesus took his grief into solitude in response to the bloody and heinous crime, this murder of his cousin, also his rabbi who baptized him, his first teacher, he went away to be alone. I also find it fascinating that the places that Jesus went to be alone were desert places, deserted places, places that are totally indifferent to your suffering, to Jesus' suffering, to our suffering. So Jesus could be out there in the wilderness and nobody's going to care if he is beheaded by a mountain lion or something like that. Um, and so you're rather forced when you're in wilderness to face your grief right in the face, to stare it right in the face. There's no distractions. There's no comforts. There's no cell phones. There's no internet. There's no emails. There's no social media. There's no warm shower. There's no nice bed. It's just you and the elements. And so in facing his grief, he could then go through it and come to the other side, which is to realize that in the end, you're actually held by the love of God from all eternity. And there's finally nothing to fear. And so 
the gaping wound then is slowly healed in the presence of the great physician and then becomes a beautiful gift that can be offered in compassion for others. Henry Nouwen wrote that um, solitude is the furnace of transformation. It's the furnace of transformation. It is in this solitude that we discover that being is more important than having and that we are worth more than the result of our efforts. In solitude, we discover that our life is not a possession to be defended, but a gift to be shared. And so solitude puts our lives in the, in the crucible, in, the, in this furnace, and it allows God to burn away all of the impurities. It's a stripping down of all the false identities, the over-exaggerated accomplishments that we are so readily easy to hide behind, such that we are before God with nothing to offer, just our true selves, only to be loved and to be accepted as we are. This is where God wants us. And this is where God does God's best work with us. When we allow God the opportunity to reduce us down to what he originally created to be without our accomplishments and our resumes and our net worths and all of these things, just to be reduced down to a human being made in the image of God, separate and distinct from what the crowds of the world tell us that we are or should be, then we're ready to be molded and shaped into something that is truly usable in the hands of God. One of my favorite poems um, by Mary Oliver frequently draws me into solitude when I'm seeking to practice solitude in a natural setting. I'll share this poem with you. It's called Invitation by Mary Oliver. Listen to these words. Oh, do you have time to linger for just a little while out of your busy and very important day for the goldfinches that have gathered in a field of thistles for a musical battle to see who can sing the highest note or the lowest or the most expressive of mirth or the most tender. Their strong blunt beaks drink the air their strong, blunt beaks drink the air as they strive melodiously, not for your sake and not for mine and not for the sake of winning, but for sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, they say, it is a serious thing to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. I beg of you, do not walk by without pausing to attend to this rather ridiculous performance. It could mean something. It could mean everything. It could mean what Rilke meant when he wrote, you must change your life. And so solitude is the furnace of transformation where both healing and growth occur. It is in solitude where we can be present to the love of God God is present in the present, not in the past, not in the future, in the present. And solitude brings us out of our regrets of the past and our worries of the future into the present moment. Finally, my final thought for the morning is that, is a, is a paradox actually, and that is that solitude is where authentic community begins. 
Solitude is where community begins. Isn't it interesting that when we practice solitude, when you take some time to practice solitude, what happens is that God brings to mind your most valuable relationships, the people in your life, the people on your heart, and he clarifies these things. Sometimes there's brokenness in relationships, and he brings those to mind. Sometimes there's gratitude in relationships, and he brings those to mind, or somebody that you have forgotten who is really important to you, and he brings them back to mind. Jesus experienced this too. Luke describes one occasion, again, in the life of Jesus um, when he was discerning and making a, a pretty big decision. Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. So that, this means that his choice of the 12 was born out of, an, out of his night of prayer and solitude. At this point, he had many disciples. Many people were following him. And so I picture Jesus on this night. He's thinking about who he's going to choose to be in the special relationship of the 12 apostles. And who would it be? And he prays through this night, thinking about all of the many. And as morning comes, 12 names emerge. The Father gave him those names, and every single one of them played a meaningful role in the events that would follow, even Judas, even Judas. And so we come to solitude to gain clarity also about decisions that we have to make and, and people that God wants us to care for. I learned from Henry Nowen to think of life as a big wagon wheel um, with many spokes. I think I would prefer a mountain biking wheel, perhaps. And in the middle is the hub, and all the spokes are people who we are called to love and called to serve and called to be in relationship with. Um, but often in life, it looks like we're running around the rim, trying to get from spoke to spoke, trying to, to meet people's needs and care for people and, and all of that. But God says, stay in the hub, stay in the hub, live in the hub, and then you'll be connected with all of the spokes and you won't have to run so fast. He says, it's precisely in the hub that we discover the call to community and what kind of community that God is calling us to serve. It's remarkable that solitude always calls us to community. In solitude, you realize that you're part of a human family and that you want to build something together. And by community, I don't mean formal communities. I don't mean organizations. I do mean families and friends and congregations and parishes as the gathering of God's people, not as the organization. I also think about 12-step groups and prayer groups and community groups. Community is not an organization. It is a way of living you gather around people with whom you want to proclaim the truth that we are all God's beloved. That's community. Authentic community isn't easy. Somebody once said community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. That's just called church right there. Um, and that's what makes Christian community distinct because we are placed in a crucible where we are required to love. 
And this is why I think small church, uh, 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 house church models do not serve the purpose that we need. We need to be in relationship with people we would not otherwise choose to be in relationship with. And that's where we learn how to love. Um, and that's where God does great work with us. Why is it so important that solitude come before community? Because if we don't know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, which is we learn this in solitude, if we don't know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we will always expect someone from the community to give that message for us, and they can't. They can't make us feel that way. We'll expect someone to give us that perfect, unconditional love. But community is not loneliness grabbing on to loneliness. It's solitude grabbing on to solitude. It's not, I'm so lonely, you're so lonely, fix my loneliness, I'll fix your loneliness. No, it is, I am beloved, you are beloved, together we can build a home. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic text, Life Together, had two chapters back to back. And one chapter is called The Day Together, and then the next chapter is called The Day Alone. He understood that both times of solitude and times of community are essential to healthy Christian living. He writes this, let him who cannot be alone beware of community, right? Because they're danger, they're a danger. But let him who is not in community beware of being alone, each carries with it pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of feelings and words. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. You see, we tend to err towards one or the other. The introverts are like, yeah, solitude. And the extroverts are like, yeah, community. But the extroverts really need to practice solitude. And the introverts really need to practice community. And that way we can both grow. I, I think Jesus was probably found himself right in the middle of these two in, that, in the balance. It's interesting for me to preach about solitude right after returning from this trip in Kenya. Um, I remember when, as we were walking the, the streets of one of the most destitute slums in the world, Mathari, I was thinking about this sermon and I was reminded that solitude is, an, is a luxury for the privileged. There's no place for solitude in Mathari. You can't find a place to study a book, to learn, to get ahead in school, or to find time of solitude. Interestingly, outside of those slum areas, there's many wonderful, beautiful places in Kenya where people can get away in nature and spend time in solitude, and suppose they, they do. We stayed at a place, uh, some of our people stayed at a place called Resurrection Garden. Um, I, we have a picture of it, and it was this beautiful um, uh, retreat center that is owned by the Catholic Church and it's run by nuns. And this is a prayer garden that Terry Meidinger discovered and found himself times of solitude in the midst of our chaotic mission trip in, in outside of Nairobi. And, and you have to be in so there's so, signs all over the place that say silence and silence. And so, um, but one thing that I really loved about the people in Kenya that struck me uh, and made me more aware of our need for, for solitude 
is their relationship with time is much more relaxed. They know how to be present. It's built into their culture. And we find ourselves constantly thinking about the thing that's coming next. And so with our frenetic pace of life, it is an absolute requirement for us to carve out times of solitude because our culture goes so fast and so far against it that we really, really need it. And so I would just suggest, I'm going to um, kind of wrap this up, but I just want to suggest that you would take some time this week to practice solitude. And, and one suggestion would be to take a text like in, in uh, Matthew 10, 46 and forward is this story of Jesus and blind Bartimaeus. And enter into this story for about 30 or 45 minutes. Read it all the way through and just imagine and, and play with your imagination. Let the scene unfold. But then redo it again and put yourself in blind Bartimaeus' shoes. And imagine that is Jesus that is passing by you. And you're on the side of the road and you recognize that he is coming to you. And, and it is in that moment that Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this has become known in the contemplative traditions as the Jesus prayer. You can say that over and over and over again. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you do that while you're walking or hiking, it becomes self-propelling and in motion with your steps. And, and then, so you think about then what it is that you want mercy for. And then hear Jesus respond back to you as he says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Hear that question in silence and in solitude. What, it is, what is it that you want Jesus to do for you today, in this moment, right now? Bartimaeus responds by saying, Lord, I want to see. Do you want to see? Where do you need clarity in your life? Where are things in relationships, things in your future, things in your past where it, you might not be seeing clearly? And then wait for Jesus to give you vision, to give you sight. Spend some time each day in solitude. And I just want to close now with um, a brief meditation that kind of we began with from Psalm 46. And um, our worship leaders can come up during this time. But I invite you to just take a uh, sit up straight. Take a deep breath. You might hold your palms in an open posture and enter into the silence of Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.